0: it's time for class
1: civics just doesn't begin and end on election day this is sunday civics
0: the home for the civically engaged with political strategist l joy williams on sirius xm's urban view
1: welcome to sunday civics i'm your host l joy williams and i'm excited about this conversation that's about to happen. I have all of the questions for our next guest I have like my private class (laughs) with our next guest and if you have listened to the show for some time you know that means I'm about to enter nerd mode and just be (laughs) just ask all of the questions and try to see if I can get a better understanding and a better context and history of all of these things I've always believed and I'm sure she's going to tell me you're wrong. Because that's literally how I felt when I read <laughs> this, this book. I was like, wait, all of this stuff that I have learned in school that was told to be, you mean, was part of like this elaborate plan to, yeah, that's that that's what it was. And so joining <laughs> for the first time here on Sunday Civics is the author and professor Naomi Oreskes. I got it. Did I get it right? Close enough. <laughs> <laughs> she is the co author of The Big Myth How American Business Taught Us to Loathe Government and Love the Free Market. Naomi, thank you so very much for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. So, if you could see my ebook version of The Big Myth, it has all of these highlights. and notes. And then I went to the end of the book and was like, where else can I pull and find these things? And then, you know, thinking, you know, the, the, the fact, the, the researcher, I guess in me was then like taking some of the highlights and then going Googling and finding other things. And I I just, before we get into the thick of this conversation, because as you know, I'm bursting (laughs) with (laughs) questions. Since it's your first time on the show, I'd love to hear the story of your first civic action. Oh, well, okay. That was a long time ago. So
2: my parents were very civically minded and they were very engaged in the civil rights movement and also the anti-Vietnam War movement. So as a very young child, I was taken to protest rallies. I always like to say when I was a kid growing up, the mall was not a place you went shopping. The mall was the place in Washington, D.C., where you went to protest rallies. And I can remember as a very young child being given Ziploc bags that inside had a cloth that had been soaked in water so that if we got tear gassed, we could put
1: it over our faces. Wow 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 so I, first of all i'm amazed that the 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 mall was the place to protest how interesting given what you've written about in this book next <laughs> like is a mall being a representation <laughs> like of this place of like pushing you know cab- i don't know if you've seen well, no, mean, the documentary
2: the mall in washington dc you know the mall between the oh washington- I, mean, I-, I
1: thought you mi- No, no, I was trying to make a joke. Like
2: my children think the mall is where you go shopping, but for me, the mall was where you went to protest.
1: (laughs) Understood. Because I was getting ready to say (laughs) local mall. Like that's interesting. But that (laughs) yes, that 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 is great. I, I mean, for for my for I think everybody's perspective, like. You know, the mall is just like, oh, that's just the protest location. Like, I think every organization has on their pegboard or their dry erase board, have we done a protest at the mall yet? So that that is definitely a a commonality there. So what you have written, along with your co-author, Eric Conway, you did, was it The Merchants of... Merchants of Doubt. Yeah. Yes. Was was before. And now you're tackling capitalism. And as someone who is wrestling with capitalism myself, one, this was in general eye opening in that I know that a lot of things have you know, history context and sort of manufacturing behind them, like of why we've come to believe certain things, right? How we've come to believe or how most Americans have come to believe why the civil war was fought and all of the things connected to it was part of someone's campaign. And, you know, an organization created a campaign to think of it that way. And it seeped through into our culture, into media, into our schools. I was unaware that that same thing happened as it pertains to the free market. I didn't know that there was some, and I don't want to use like elaborate conspiracy because you know, you know, it has a certain connotation of having a tinfoil hat, but you know, but this is real concrete things that have seeped into our culture, seeped into so many different systems that now it makes sense to me why it's so hard to break, right? Why it's so hard for people to think differently. Talk to us about the book in general, why you all decided to tackle this and what the you know the the basic gist of reading this gives a person.
2: Sure. well, thank you. That's a great intro. So first of all, it's important to be clear. The book is not an attack on capitalism. It's an attack on a certain interpretation of capitalism that we call market fundamentalism. And it's an attack on a propagandistic ideology that that tries to persuade us that we could just trust markets. We can trust the capitalists. We can trust the captains of industry to solve our problems. And we don't need the government to protect workers, to protect consumers or protect the natural environment. And so that's what we're going after. It's a kind of form of capitalism that has been practiced in America in the last 40 years or so, a highly deregulated form of capitalism with low rates of taxation, weakened antitrust enforcement. And this is the target of the book. And one of the things we argue in the book is that, you know, capitalism like religion or like the state has been many different things through history and we can You know, we want to argue that we can have a capitalism that serves us all and not just the one percent. We came to write the book because of our work that we had done on climate change. So Eric Conway and Mm -hmm. I are both historians of science and technology by training. And we, Merchants of Doubt was about climate change denial and about people who rejected the scientific evidence of the reality of climate change. And we wanted to know, why would anyone do that? I mean, the science of climate change is so clear. And Maybe today it's a little obvious because so many things in our country have become politicized, but it wasn't obvious 15 years ago when we started working on this issue. But what we found was that the climate deniers were motivated to reject scientific evidence that pointed to the failures of capitalism. So they didn't just reject the scientific evidence of climate change, but also the evidence of the ozone hole, the evidence of the damage done to the environment and to people from acid rain, and also the harms of tobacco. And we, we discovered that these people had worked with the tobacco industry, and part of what they had done to defend tobacco was to build this story about the free market, about the freedom of smokers to smoke, and that you didn't need the government to protect you from this deadly product because it should be up to you. But of course, the problem with that is that, first of all, tobacco's addictive. Second of all, we were saturated with marketing and advertising. Third of all, we were given bad information, so we couldn't make good choices because we were being lied to. And you know, to me, one of the most noxious parts of the tobacco campaign is that it was promoted to Black Americans as a form of freedom, that you were expressing your freedom by, by smoking. And so we wanted to challenge that whole set of ideologies that we think misrepresent freedom, misrepresent how capitalism could operate, and deny us the opportunity to build an economic system that works for everyone.
1: That I appreciate that that context. And I, I think, like I said in the beginning, in terms of me wrestling with my own thought process about capitalism, one, it's very difficult if you for anyone if you've come to believe something for most of your life and then you're presented with history and context and challenge that change something that you fundamentally believe, right? And it's hard for people to unpack that. And yeah. I'm just, you know, I can use my own my own self as that example, right? And I remember doing Cynthia Nixon's campaign when I was working on the campaign, and she said a quote or something about obviously she was being attacked of at being a socialist. And she was giving a speech and she was like, okay, so what's wrong with that? Like it's not a big, you know, like a, not a right. big deal kind of thing. Right. And me, I was like, I was like, first of all, right. like what kind of campaign is this? <laughs> you right. know, like right. you know, that that internal like prick was like, wait, and I always you know, up until a certain point felt the need to clarify if I was being accused of that and be like, "Ah, I'm not a socialist, I own businesses. I do, you know, that like, so it's that internal prick because it is such a fundamental part of how we are socialized in terms of American culture. And it wasn't, you know, I remember the exact moment that I come like that, Cynthia Nixon piece was a, a, a moment for me. But then also when I heard James Lawson talk about, I've used the phrase predatory capitalism to Mm. define the the distinct difference of what I was talking about in terms of our economic system. And then he said plantation capitalism. And And I was like, ooh. (laughs) Right? I was like, and then that set me on the pathway in terms of, really defining what capitalism is and then does it have to be so connected to our American identity? And in reading the big myth, you know, you, Y'all spend a lot of time, you know, spend some time sort of talking about that definition and why it's so tied to American culture. Can you talk a bit about that? Yeah,
2: great. Well, that's exactly right. So, one of the key arguments we make in this book is that the market fundamentalists have tried to persuade us that there are only two choices unregulated capitalism, where basically the captains of industry do whatever they want, make as much money as they want, and the rest of us, oh, well. or communism or socialism, right? And it's, it's what academics call the fallacy of the excluded middle, or not to be too wonky, what most people would just understand as a false dichotomy. And that's why I think you and many other people get nervous, you know, if we get accused of being socialists, well, first of all, this is why, right? What they're trying to do is set up a dichotomy where either you accept unregulated capitalism, no protections for workers, no protections for the environment, no redistribution of wealth, or, you know, you're a flaming red. And that denies us the opportunity to have the conversations we need to have about the right balance between market forces, which are very good for doing some things as a business owner, you know that, but really bad at doing other things like, for example, offering health care or I mean, I'm in Los Angeles right now and right outside my window, there are scores of homeless people in a city filled with luxury apartments that are sitting empty. So the market is not providing the homes that people in this city need. And that's true across this country. And so we need to have a conversation about market failure, about what do we do when the market doesn't take care of healthcare, doesn't take care of of homes or creates a crisis like climate change. And it's been really hard to have that conversation in America because when you try to, you get accused of being a socialist. The other really important part of this story is part of the market fundamentalist argument is the argument that we call capitalism and freedom or capitalism is freedom. So the market fundamentalists tried to undermine progressive reforms like workman's compensation. I mean, the book starts in the early 20th century with debates, progressive era debates over child labor and workman's compensation, injury to workers in the workplace, injury and death. And when we were writing this book, we thought, well, child labor will be a really good place to start because no one would deny No one today would deny that child labor was a bad thing. Well, actually, there are Republicans in this country right now, even as we speak, trying to roll back child labor laws. But in the early 20th century, children as young as two years old worked in factories and textile mills. And when reformers tried to say that that was bad, that children should be in school and not factories, business leaders said, no, this is a denial of freedom. It's a denial of the freedom of business people to decide how to run their businesses and it's a denial of the freedom of fathers to decide what their children should do
1: and oh wait wait wait, wait. Yeah. no they did not bring the dad- daddies oh yeah. into why do conservatives love using daddies in their arguments it's like fathers in the home fathers decide this fathers need to decide women's abri-. like Right. Well, because it's
2: linked to a very patriarchal and I could honestly say a white patriarchal ideology, right, that white men should be making the decisions. And so this becomes the, the kind of basis of what becomes a big argument that invokes freedom to defend the prerogatives of the business elites. And of course, it's a very clever strategy because we all believe in freedom. And so what they do, and they do this consciously, and in the book, we discuss documents where people actually say this. They say, look, you know, the captains of industry aren't really very credible as the defenders of the interests of working class Americans. But if we make it about freedom, then people will be persuaded. And so that's what they do. But as we point out in the book, it's not true. Because of course, America was a capitalist country going back to 1776, didn't stop America from enslaving millions of black people didn't stop America from denying the civil rights, the political rights of women, didn't stop the exploitation of working class people. So the idea that capitalism somehow protects our political freedom is frankly a lie, but it has been deeply promoted and accepted by Americans in many, many walks of American life
1: yeah that is particularly interesting because i remember i went to Hofstra and i remember in some classes or just like i don't know if it was in a class or maybe just like you know the cafeteria debates or whatever about some economy students like econ students would be like eventually the market if government hadn't intervened Would have abolished slavery, the South would have abolished slavery because they would have figured it wouldn't work better. And I I remember (laughs) looking around (laughs) being like, what kind of, what the. (laughs) And there are people who still believe that, right? Because I've seen it on Twitter, right? Like, it's just like eventually the South would have had to let go of slavery because, and I was like, but there were 200, there were, (laughs) it didn't happen 10 years. Like,
2: it was. (laughs) <laughs> exactly. And there are people who say that today about climate change. I mean, I read this in the Wall Street Journal and we quote this in the book. Just leave it to the market. The market will sort it out. And I'm like, well, yeah, but by then all of West Antarctic will have melted and we'll be living under 10 meters of sea level rise. So, you know, that's not really an answer to say, oh, just trust the market. it will work it all out. I mean, in the meanwhile, yeah. you know, maybe in theory, but in the meanwhile, people are suffering, people are dying.
1: You know, I always say to people when I'm, you know, advocating on legislation or things or whatever, that actually the market adapts to whatever, whatever comes next. Right. So if we impose regulation, if we do that, whatever, it's fine. The market will still figure out how to make money off of it. Yeah. And, that's
2: right? so like- and that's a right. <laughs> part of the argument of the book, right? That the whole notion of the free market is false, right? There's no such thing as a market that exists outside of human society. We create markets and we create the rules by which those markets operate. You can find rules about how markets should operate in the Old Testament. So it's really up to us to say, look, we, we think markets can be powerful, but we don't think you should buy and sell people. Or we think people, you know, markets can be effective, but we don't think that you should be able to dump carbon pollution into the atmosphere with impunity.
1: Yeah. So I want to step back a second before we take a break, because you use the phrase market fundamentalism and obviously what you talk about in the book. I want you to expound upon that and really explain it to someone listening who is not an econ student or a historian and what that means.
2: Well, we use the term fundamentalist Deliberately, we're following George Soros, who's the person who first popularized the phrase, because it's a kind of quasi-religious belief. It's not based on evidence. And in fact, one of the things we show in the book is that when evidence comes up to refute it, the market fundamentalists just deny the evidence so it's fundamentalist because it has this quasi-religious quality and it's market fundamentalism because it is about having faith in markets it's basically saying just trust the marketplace to do its magic so it's a kind of magical thinking and the government just has to get out of the way and we've all heard that argument you can read it in the wall street journal in fortune forbes even in the new york times So it's it's fundamentalist because it denies the complexities of civil society and says, oh, we can just trust the market to
1: solve our problems. Mm, Understood. And I mean, there is, you just probably, I had to take a note because right now, At least in Black community structures, there is this conversation, um, particularly being promoted to Black men, that the way for them to come up, if you will, is all focused on economics. And, you know, everything is focused on economics. Can you have an LLC? Can you, you know, build a business? What are you doing? Are you investing? Are you marketing? Are you buying land and selling it? At, right, like all of that focus that we laugh and joke about on social media, there is a, a targeted, I, I say, structured campaign towards Black men on this is how you... You know, move up. This is how you take back your communities by focus on the market, by focusing on building your financial wealth, you alone right, can solve the ills in Black community. You alone can solve the ills of your family and, and, and things of that nature. You know, Black women are going to school and doing all this stuff, whatever, but you need to focus on the market and the building and crypto and all that, you know, all that kind of stuff. I do feel that it's manufactured in sort of targeting Black men in a particular way. So I, I find that thing that it is connected, which I want to talk about after the break, to faith. And also sold to schools. So, we're gonna take a quick break, and then when we come back, I'm gonna ask you this propaganda that we've all been subject to and how it seeped into our culture when we come back here on Sunday Civics.
3: All the wahala, all the problems, all the things that you think that you must do to start in this world. Like when the teacher, schoolboy and schoolgirl come together. Who is the teacher? I go
1: let you know. Who is the teacher? I go let you know. Welcome back to Sunday Civics. I am with right now the co-author of the big myth: How American business taught us to loathe government and love the free market with Naomi Oreskies. I think I got it. <laughs> or I'm gonna say it, I'm gonna say it three, I'm gonna say it three different times or like three different times through this whole the whole conversation. So thank you about that. When we I said when I wanted to come to break I, I wanted to talk about some of the points starting with the propaganda and you know, the way we learned in school about propaganda, we, I, I feel like the entry point to propaganda was obviously Germany and Nazism. And so we learn of it as this very evil thing that dictators do, that it can't possibly happen in our society or in a daily or, or the light propaganda way. You know, we learn of it in this very, it's tied to dictators, it's tied to oppressive movements, it's tied in that way. I think that does us a disservice because then we're not prepared when we encounter propaganda in our daily lives, which we do, right? And one example is the propaganda you talk about in the 20s in the book, the National Electric Light Association launched this massive campaign that include hiring professors and academics to sort of promote one particular ideal. So that's like in colleges and universities, right? That sort of that up. Also in public schools, right? Because they do it in textbooks and, you know, change the language or the framing of different things. And, and ship out curriculum for teachers to use in, in that instance. They also recruited different speakers to go on circuit tours and, you know, paid for that in addition to just like the normal radio shows that were on during that time. Right. So it was a coordinated campaign to seep these ideas into our culture, which, is reminiscent of what's happening right now or what just happened, you know, 10, 15 years ago, whether it's with, you know, conservative radio in schools, on school boards, textbooks, and things of that nature. So when we enter propaganda as just what an evil dictator does, we're not prepared for this. So <laughs> can you talk about exactly how this is connected? Exactly. One of the difficulties, as
2: you point out, about talking about these sorts of things is that it's easy for people to accuse you of being a tin pot conspiracy theorist. And also, as you say, most people associate propaganda with wartime propaganda. But what we show in the book is that there's also peacetime propaganda and it doesn't have to be associated with governments. It can be associated with the private sector. And so, as you say, in the book, we have a chapter on NILA, the National Electric Light Association, that launched a massive propaganda campaign, not just to persuade people of the wonders of electricity and electric lights, but to persuade people of the wonders of free market capitalism and to push back against government regulation of electricity markets to protect the interest of the industry by persuading us to be skeptical of government broadly. And this program was so extensive that subsequently they were investigated. So this took place in the 1920s before the Federal Trade Commission was established. Later, when the Federal Trade Commission was established, they went back and looked at it. They called it the largest peacetime propaganda campaign in American history. So I think, as you say, most of us, it doesn't occur to us that we would be the victims of propaganda in our own countries by the very businesses that we might be buying products from. But we can be, and we have been. In the book, we show how that happened in the 1920s. And then again, during the New Deal, when another trade organization, the National Association of Manufacturers, reprised that whole thing and launched a second propaganda campaign that in some ways was even more nefarious because it included a very popular radio program called the American Family Robinson, the Hollywood movies, and all kinds of other things.
1: I immediately made the connection as to the reason, you know, that there is this whole push against, you know, black studies or diverse uh, community studies in schools, whether they be in colleges or public education of taking out books and things of that nature. It's all because they recognize that if it's in popular culture, if it's in curriculum, you know, if it's in movies and media and things of that nature, those things are powerful tools in, you know, changing the conversation and also in challenging or creating beliefs in in people as they age, right? Because if you've seen it in movies, if you see diversity in movies, if you, you know, are able to give proper context to American enslavement and, you know, Jim Crow and all that, if you get to that point, then now you as an adult later, you know, can make different choices that doesn't really fit, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you exactly. know, what people are trying to move. And you know, what's interesting is also the religious connection. Mm-hmm. This was, you know, also eye-opening to me. I had to like text my cousin, who's uh a, a pastor, and I was like, do you like this connection of like how the these machines backed, you know, sort of the Christian fundamental, you know, evangelism movement that was happening as well. And the connection. Between market fundamentalism and Christianity, like it became this connection. Can you, you talk a bit about that?
2: Exactly. So this is another one of the really, really kind of astonishing things that we found in our research. So as you just suggested a minute ago, if we think about how do our beliefs get formed, most of us probably have at least four things that strongly influence us: what we learn from our parents, what we learn from our teachers what we see in film and television or in the 1930s, what people heard on the radio, and what we hear in church on Sunday. And so the people we study in this book targeted all of those. So we've already talked about schools and influencing the American people broadly, but one of the key things that happened after World War II was an attempt not just to influence, but actually to change American Christianity. So before World War II, many American Protestants were very sympathetic to the poor for the obvious reason that Jesus' message is a message of love and compassion for the poor. And so this was viewed by the captains of American industry as a big problem. And so a key figure in this story is J. Howard Pugh, who was a member of the National Association of Manufacturers and the president of the Sunoco Sun Oil Company, what we now know as Sunoco today. Pew consciously decided to work with colleagues to change the way American Protestants thought about poverty, And to really tell the story that you just referred to a a few minutes ago, that the solution to poverty was not education, it wasn't government programs, it was individual entrepreneurship that poor people, black men, again men, could pull themselves up through their bootstraps if they just worked hard enough and you didn't need the government to help them, you didn't need social security and you didn't need the GI Bill. And so he worked to influence they wrote they developed magazines newsletters that were sent to ministers around the country to influence what they would say in sunday sermons they had reading lists that they would propose to ministers and say oh here read this book and we found one example of a really incredibly noxious book it was a book called the road ahead by a man by the name of james flynn and in this book among other things he has a chapter on lynching in which he says that the reports of lynching are greatly exaggerated, and they're being promoted by communists who are trying to do this to undermine our faith in America. This book, Defending Lynching, was sent out, copies were sent to ministers all across the American South, and we found at least one example of a sermon where we found a minister quoting this book in a Sunday sermon in Tennessee. They, let me just add a few more. I know, pretty scary stuff. Oh. Usually when I buy books for my research, I resell them at the end. That book I threw in the garbage because I didn't want anyone else reading it. <laughs> so it was so boring. Oh. But also they created a journal called Christian Economics, and they also helped to fund a number of different ministers. And one of the people they... One like of the people Billy Graham. Is, like Billy Graham and also Norman Vincent Peale, who officiated at the first marriage of Donald Trump.
1: Oh, see, it is very hard not to do the tinfoil hat. (laughs) Yeah, very hard to not be at the whiteboard and be like connected. There's a meme of a guy like doing the connections. (laughs) Like that's what I feel like right now in, in terms of that. So. You know, I want to, because you talk about the progressive era and that is a huge, like in another life, I am a professor specializing in the era of the progressive era because I'm just so enamored with that time period. I feel like it's another instance where there could have been, you know, this continuation and this push of multiracial, you know, diverse class push against these captains of industry. And it failed again, right? Like, you know, it's, my ongoing argument that you know it was after Reconstruction again, where you had this multi-racial coalition building, and then captains of industry come in and tell you know white working class and poor people you don't want to be like the Negroes, and they buy into it. And I feel like race is always sprinkled in, and we can never get over that hump for a more just society because captains of industry will always you know, divide, you know, in that racial construct, the progressive era is another instance where that comes in. But, you know, I find it interesting going back to the point you made about you all focusing on child labor, because it is a very, like, you wouldn't, you know, most people would agree this is the, you know, this is the entry point. And then most people would agree, no, I don't want a 5 year old like, you know, picking my lettuce or, you know, being in a coal mine or things like that. Like, it seems like such an extreme example, even though there are people arguing for it, including right now (laughs) that are arguing against that. What are some examples either, you know, as mentioned in the book or others that are more subtle, right, that are more like, it's not, you know, the extreme of child labor or protections of healthcare and things of that nature. But what are some of the more subtle things that we miss that we have bought into
2: Well, that's an interesting question. Well, I guess it's a little hard for me to judge what other people would view as subtle or not, but certainly the repeated attacks on Social Security. I mean, one of the things that was always a bit mysterious to me before I wrote this book is, why would Republicans attack Social Security or insist that it needs to be privatized when it's been an incredibly successful program? Social Security was created to address poverty among the elderly. And it has worked. There are relatively few poor elderly people in this country. In fact, overall, elderly people actually are probably better off than many other groups. It's very successful. It pays for itself through the payroll tax. And people love it. Polls show that 70 to 80% of Americans really like Social Security and want it to continue and be there for them and their children. So why would you attack a program that is successful, is popular, and achieved its goals? And the answer is because it's successful right? Because social security refutes the market ideologist, market fundamentalist ideology that we should just leave everything to the marketplace. When we left everything to the marketplace, we had impoverished elderly people, impoverished disabled people, impoverished orphans. Once we had social security, those problems were largely remedied. The program works and it's a big government program. So it shows that big government can work that big government can be successful and it can solve problems that the private sector doesn't solve. And so because it refutes their ideology, they have to attack and they have to lie about it. And so that's why we keep seeing these repeated Republican and conservative claims that social security is broken when it isn't broken. It's, as we say in the book, It's an old system and old systems need repair, you know, old bicycles need oil, old cars need maintenance. So, yes, Social Security periodically has to be updated to adjust to changing demographics, but it is not a broken system.
1: I think that's a, a great example. I actually did a show on Social Security and like, talking about that overall and that example, yeah. right? Of you know, Social Security is within their definition socialist, right? <laughs> right. Exactly.
2: But it's got you that try to put pr- the word in the title It
1: must be socialist. right. But <laughs> yeah, but you try prying. The, I don't care if the elderly person is Republican, conservative, libertarian, whatever. You try prying that Social Security check <laughs> from someone, and you are talking about to protest (laughs) like they will lose their ever-loving mind again because it works and you know we know the impact of that so we'll take a break and we'll be right back with more sunday civics how can it be Welcome back to Sunday Civics. So I want to talk about, just as we wrap up, the regulations piece. Because, you know, you can get into, and, and I use the phrase, the econ, I used to call them the econ kids, right? These are the kids you went to school with who like they're, I'm going to business school, I'm gonna, you know, work on Wall Street. I'm gonna, like they're completely focused and sort of focus on the economy and that's how they're gonna contribute to the world. And I believe they are like fully bought into the market fundamentalism piece. I have some of them in my own family and it is very difficult having regular conversations with them because everything is about <laughs> the market, right? And have you read the five books on the market you must read today? Your annoying cousin. <laughs> And one of the things they hate the most is government regulation that, you know, will ask your econ cousin or your business school cousin about this. And you will probably end up with a fight at Thanksgiving or Easter table. (laughs) But I want to lift up this paragraph from the book I think this is in the introduction, that around the start of the 20th century, most Americans agreed that government needed to step in to address the problems unregulated capitalism created. And I'm lifting this up for a reason. Those included both market failures, such as bank collapses and social costs, such as the garment workers who perished in the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory in 1911, Thousands of workers killed every year due to railroad accidents, boiler explosion, mine collapses. And 1913, we get the Federal Reserve System, right, to foster economic stability. 1914, we get the FTC, the Federal Trade Commission, so that we prevent, hopefully, unfair and deceptive business practices. When banks failed in the the Great Depression, what do we get from there? FDIC, Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, to protect people's money, which we just saw activated with some bank failures recently. When the water became polluted in Cuyahoga River in Cleveland and it was on fire. <laughs> we then you know get protections for standard clean air and water right so there are regulations and most people believe that yeah we should not have corporations and businesses just running rampant you you know they should not be able to dump their trash or tear up the roads or things like that so most people believe there needs to be systems in place to prevent businesses from doing things that are harmful to the rest of society Yet, is it just a, 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 a part of market fundamentalism? Just like we should have no regulations and we should just be able to do whatever we want?
2: Well, yes. And I think that that example of your cousin shows how effective this propaganda has been. Because as you said, we have 100 years of successful government regulation, including regulations that make capitalism work. Things like the FDIC that just rescued the Silicon Valley Bank. These entrepreneurs, these capitalists couldn't do the work they did if we didn't have a Federal Reserve, if we didn't have the FTC and the F- and the FDIC. So these rules and regulations enable markets to work. They prevent monopoly. Capitalistic practices. They create level playing fields. They protect contract law. All these things that are actually essential for capitalism and market fundamentalism effaces those realities. People sometimes ask me, what's my hope for this book? And the single biggest thing that I hope our book could do is actually to change the conversation about regulation, because it's been so demonized by the libertarian and fundamentalist right that even many of us who believe in government and believe in the essential role of government, often feel sort of sheepish about defending the government. And so we'll, we'll talk about regulation as if it were a necessary evil, something that we wish we didn't have to do. But, you know, we kind of have to. But I would really like to flip that on its head and create a new conversation where we think of regulation as a good because it's the thing that makes things work. And so at the end of the book, we really struggled with how to make this argument. And we came up with it at the end. I thought maybe this might be what you were going to quote, so I'll I'll raise it. The notion of biological regulation. In biology, regulation is understood to be not just good, but essential. Organisms cannot live unless they can regulate their biochemical systems. If they're mammals, they regulate their temperature. Without biological regulation, life collapses. And the same thing is true for economies. Without economic regulation, the economy collapses. And that's the argument that I hope people can take from this book, that we can have capitalism, but it needs to be a well-regulated capitalism.
1: That is exactly what I was going to yes. You know, I, I, I'm always looking for entry points for those who are listening, right? And so, you know, I, you know, I'm doing my own like internal reflection in terms of well, how capitalist am I, and like what, and you know, it's also doing a disservice, right, because we are in the era of politics where you're either or, and that's it, right? There isn't room for nuance and context, which you know I keep trying to push against, but. As you mentioned, it takes a lot. Like you got to, you know, <laughs> sort of permeate through, you know, a hundred years of <laughs> culture and, you know, media and things of that nature in order to get to that point. But for someone who's listening, who may pick up the book and read more, what is the civics lesson out of here? What is, what are some, you know, actions we can take as we close?
2: well i think the civic lesson one is about being self-educated and not just sort of assuming things that you've heard you know because you saw it on television you heard it you know read in the wall street journal and to recognize as you said yourself propaganda is a real thing it's not just that the work of evil dictators that we can be propagandized even in our own society and that it really behooves of all of us to think critically about these big questions and not just assume you know that you know you know, that markets are magic. I I can't tell you how many grownups I've heard use that expression, the magic of the marketplace. And I always think, wow, magical thinking, that's supposed to be associated with children, you know? So I want to encourage (laughs) grownups to reject magical thinking, to think hard. We've got big problems in this country. I think they are solvable, but they won't be solved if we can't get past the propagandistic slogans of the market fundamentalists.
1: That's really important. And to remember that you know, it's not magic. These are decisions made by humans, exactly. right? So, you know, they, it, it, it's a decision to sell, you know, a life-saving drug <laughs> unit at astronomical prices, Right. Like those are decisions that a human makes exactly. um, that we can that we can change. Well, Naomi, thank you so very much for taking the time to discuss. Uh, hopefully, I wasn't too much of an eager student.
2: No, no, <laughs> super fun conversation. But it's yep. been really great. Thank you so much for having me on the
1: show. Thank you. And thanks to all of you for making it to class. I'll see you next week for another engaging and informative discussion. Until then, stay engaged, stay informed, and keep making a difference. Have a good one.
3: My name is Gustavo Rivera. I'm a state senator for the 33rd District in the Northwest Bronx. And this is my first civic action. I actually can't remember the first thing that I did as far as civic action is concerned. Uh, I come from Puerto Rico. I was born and raised there. And in Puerto Rico politics is kind of a blood sport. Uh, It is something that people do all the time. I voted in elections down there, but I didn't really get involved in electoral politics. I studied political science, but I looked at it as strictly an academic exercise. I moved to New York in 98 to do a PhD in political science because I thought that I would be doing academics for the rest of my life. But uh, then a friend of mine uh, in 99 expressed an interest in running for city council. Uh, And I was a little intoxicated at the time, so I said, yes, I'll help you out, even though I had no idea what I was doing. And so I could probably say that my first civic action was getting involved in a city council campaign in Brooklyn in 2001 when I had no idea how to do any of it. I didn't know how to do electoral organizing, didn't know how to knock on doors, how to actually do a voter file or any of these technical things that I know now as an operative for many years. Uh, but, uh, but it was the one thing that got me started and learning about how direct political action can actually have an impact on people's lives.
0: This is Leslie Mack, founder of Safety Pinbox, and this is my first Civic Action. So when you asked me, you know, obviously I voted ever since I turned 18, but the thing that jumped out in my mind when I was thinking my first actual civic action, um, was I, I started working, I'm a Unitarian Universalist, it's my faith. And I started working with our legislative ministry in New Jersey, which is where I was living um, for about 10 years in the Philadelphia, New Jersey area. And we started doing some work around bail reform. Um, specifically around money bail and uh, trying to get more people out of jail that were just sitting there waiting for um, sentencing and waiting for their hearings, generally speaking. And so for me, they, that was my first, direct civic engagement, kind of engaging legislature in a different way. Um, I was amazed by the process itself. I mean, we, we had to do all sorts of things. You know, we had to collect signatures. We had to um, do phone call banks. We had to um, collect stories and actually go to hearings with legislator to talk about what this issue was meaning and how it was ruining people's lives, you know, being caught behind bars, losing their jobs, losing their children, losing their families, um, and how it was not contributing to the health of our state, generally speaking. But what struck me most about the interaction was um, at, at the at the hearing to get bail reform on the ballot in New Jersey, I was wondering before we went in with all of um, these folks that had, had been uh, detrimentally affected by the bail process – who was going to be the opposition? I, I had in my mind before we went in, like, who's going to come in and speak against um, getting folks out of jail that are not violent offenders, that literally can't afford as as little as $100 to just go home to their families and continue their lives while they deal with a legal issue? And it was the bail bondsman industry. And, um, sitting there in this courtroom with a bunch of folks that I had gotten to know really well that were fighting for their lives and for lives of people like themselves and listening to, you know, grown men talk to, um, the, the committee about the fact that if this passed, New Jersey would lose tax dollars from the bail bondsman industry. Um, it was the first time I had heard in um in a civic engagement setting someone actually make the argument that money was more important than the livelihood and lives of actual citizens. And it was a it was such an eye-opening moment for me and it really emboldened me to continue doing both civic action and social justice and organizing and activism work because I realized that there were people not not passively fighting, you know, um, against these things, but actively um, utilizing these, you know, nefarious points of view to say to um, the committee that, well, you won't be able to afford all the things that you want uh, for the state to do if you pass this law. That is clearly just, Um, you know, we were lucky enough to get it on on the ballot and it passed, um, you know, widely and it was great. It was a great win and it made me feel really good. But I'll never forget that day in the courtroom listening to, um, you know, the, the case be made that uh, this was worth these folks' lives because tax dollars were more important. Um, and the money that was coming through the bail bondsman industry to, um, to the state of New Jersey was more important than what we had to share with them.
1: Thanks, Leslie, for sharing your first Civic Action story. To learn more about Safety Pin Box, the monthly subscription box for those striving to be allies in the fight for Black liberation, visit their website at safetypinbox.com. Share this civic action and your own story using the Sunday Civics hashtag and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. Stay tuned for more stories and full episodes of Sunday Civics on your feed every other Sunday. Now go get civically engaged.